Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, May 16th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Good morning. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Good morning. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So I think it is fair to say that the biggest health news of the week didn't happen in Washington, but in Alabama and also in Georgia. They're the two latest states to pass abortion bans intended to challenge the Supreme Court to water down or overturn Roe v. Wade. Georgia became the fourth state this year, joining Mississippi, Kentucky and Ohio to pass a ban after a doctor can detect cardiac activity in a fetus, usually around six weeks, which is before many women realize they are pregnant. Alabama, meanwhile, went further still, passing a total ban with the only exception for the life of the pregnant woman. The Senate in Alabama soundly defeated an amendment to allow abortions in the case of rape or incest. The Republican governor signed the bill on Wednesday. So why this sudden spate of abortion bans? Planned Parenthood yesterday said 15 have already passed in states this year, compared to three this same time last year. Alice, you're our, our expert here. It's a new Supreme Court. Um, I mean, I think that's that's really the biggest change. Um, that has energized the anti-abortion movement uh, across the whole country and given hope that some of these restrictions, maybe not the most extreme ones that are being proposed, but some restrictions on abortion um, could find a favorable hearing at the Supreme Court and potentially trigger revisiting Roe versus Wade. We don't it, that precedent doesn't need to be fully overturned for a lot stricter abortion restrictions. Not the Alabama one. Correct. Correct. That would definitely um, fly in the face of Roe versus Wade and potentially trigger a reversal. But I think it's important for people to remember these laws are, are being passed with an eye on the Supreme Court, but they are not going to be the first ones to reach the Supreme Court. There are so many more cases that have been brewing in the courts for years, making their way up the pipeline that are close to being considered by the Supreme Court, and those would come first. And it's well, taken an, years for yeah. them to get there. There's an Indiana law that's been actually yes. in the Supreme. You know, the Supreme Court has a conference, I guess every every week or when they're in session every yes. week, where they decide which cases they're going to take. And that Indiana case has been up at the conference, like somebody said, for the last 14 weeks. I mean, we've been we've talked. It's been so long, people have probably forgotten what this Indiana law does. It's about uh, banning abortions for sex selection and... Um, and race and disability, yes. And then there's another piece of it that um, is about fetal burial um, after an abortion. So, yes, the Supreme Court has had plenty of opportunities to take a big abortion case, to take a case that would trigger a revisiting of Roe versus Wade, and it has so far not done so. We can't make predictions, but it, it seems like they're not raring to go in terms of of um, going after this president. People were alarmed this week because the Supreme Court um, moved to overturn a different 40-year-old precedent. And it had nothing of, to do with exactly, reproductive health. nothing to do with it, but it triggered alarm bells in the abortion rights community. Um, and some of the commentary from the, justi- the progressive justices who disagreed specifically pointed to the abortion issue and said, basically, if you're willing to throw this out the window, what else are you willing 
to throw out the window. Justice Breyer, I think, yes. who's, who's usually not an alarmist kind of guy, seemed rather put out. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I think, you know, this conference issue actually is important to note that the Supreme Court is different than the lower courts where there are trial judges or even the um, federal appeals courts and that they don't have to take every case that's appealed to them. They actually get to pick which cases they want to decide on. And so it doesn't take as many justices to select a case as it does to uh have a ruling it's in four. the case. It takes four justices <laughs> mm-hmm. to select the case and say the Supreme Court's going to hear this case. Obviously, it takes five for the ruling to have some uh, you know, binding effect on the law. And so it is possible that there are four justices that are really excited to take a big abortion case. But I think it is also possible that some of these very aggressive laws, they will be heard in the lower courts. They are likely, very likely to be overturned in the lower courts because they are designed to be in direct mm-hmm. conflict with the existing precedent. And the lower courts are supposed to adhere to what the Supreme Court says on these important issues. And if the Supreme Court chooses not to take them, then those laws will just kind of get bounced back. The key question now, I think, is not just what does the Supreme Court want to do when they are faced with these questions, but does the Supreme Court, do four justices on the Supreme Court actually want to take this stuff on right away? And I think a lot of the um, the kind of hubbub over the Alabama law and the state legislators that passed it talked about we did this partic- like exactly so we could take it to the Supreme Court and overturn Roe v. Wade. It's a little overblown. I, I'm not a Supreme Court expert, but everything I've heard and read is that, especially with Roberts at the helm, they're very incrementalists. And he tends to like to take things a piece at a time. And so there are these other laws like in Indiana or ones that like in Louisiana that basically mm-hmm. narrow down the number of bo- abortion providers to one clinic in the entire state that are something that, you know, maybe they could be more likely to take in sort of a, a wholesale overturning of Roe v. Wade isn't as imminent as people might think if they read these stories about the Alabama law. I think it's also important to keep in mind that while these laws that have just been being passed are likely to be blocked by lower courts. Those lower courts are getting drawn to the right at a very rapid pace thanks to the Senate essentially deciding that it's not going to pass bills anymore. It's just going to confirm judges. That's right. very conservative judges, um, including some who have openly expressed anti-abortion views. I think what's most what's more likely with a lot of these also is they'll say, I would really like to overturn this, but I am required sure. know, to, to, to kick it up to the next level. Right. I, right. I also think to Alice's point that, you know, what we're more likely to see is like some chipping away as mm-hmm. opposed to a whole scale repeal of Roe. My colleague, Adam Liptak, who covers the Supreme Court, did a really great piece on this a couple, I think around the time Kavanaugh was confirmed. And I do think it's important to understand that. So Roe versus Wade establishes a constitutional right to abortion up to the point of viability. So that is kind of the foundational case that says that abortion bans cannot pass. But there's another really important case that comes later that's called Casey. And and that case says something more subtle. It says restrictions on abortions, there, there can be some, but they cannot create what's called an undue burden on women. And the definition of undue burden is actually, I think, at the core of what a lot of these decisions that are kind of uh, likely to be made by this court in the coming years is really important because right now they set a pretty high standard for undue burden. There's a lot of ways in which you can't make abortions hard to get. I think that this court may actually be more likely to sort of overturn Casey or reinterpret mm-hmm. Casey than it will be to go right at Roe v. Wade, at least right away. 
And it's funny, the last time we saw this sort of spate of abortion bans that states are passing was right before Casey, because it was after a different case called Webster, where it looked like the Supreme Court might be ready to allow some more significant abortion restrictions. And we had all these states rushing to pass abortion restrictions. And in Casey, actually, which was a case out of Pennsylvania, um, Casey was the then the governor, actually the father of the current senator. The Supreme Court ruled that most of the restrictions were not allowed, but some of them were. And that's why we, we see you know, there are abortion restrictions in effect in some of these states, although we should point out that all of these states that are passing bans, none of those bans are in effect because they are all designed to go to the Supreme Court. But before we leave this, I do want to talk about the politics for a minute because, you know, until sort of the last few weeks, most of the politics of abortion right now had been sort of the anti-abortions focusing on, you know, very uh, abortions very late in pregnancy, which has always been sort of the weakest part of the abortion rights case, whereas the strongest part has been, you know, at the beginning of pregnancy because the public is divided on this issue. I'm wondering if these bans aren't sort of playing into the hands of the abortion rights side when it comes to the 2020 election. Every year, both sides yell, Supreme Court, Supreme Court, abortion, and nobody pays any attention. It's never a voting issue. Could it be a voting issue this time? I think it was a voting issue last time. Arguably. Yeah, for, for the anti-abortion. Right. Yes, exactly. that's true. Was. That's a very good point. But this could trigger folks who are concerned about the rollback of abortion rights, maybe making that an issue and getting fired up at just looking at social media this week and the number of lawmakers and presidential candidates on the left who have spoken out about this. It does seem to be really tapping into something and will maybe spur folks to be more active on this issue in particular than they have been in the past. We've got health care in general as a big issue. We've got drug prices, which we'll talk about in a minute, as a big issue. Is abortion going to supplant any of those, or is it just going to sort of add to the list? I don't see it supplanting a lot of those issues. It could be maybe a, a piece of health care. We've seen abortion come into that debate many times before. Many um, times before. <laughs> and, you know, kind of lock things up. But you know, as far as getting any real work on health care done, um, it's interesting to me. I, I have a very personal perspective perspective growing up as a, a religious kid, and I, I'm not any longer, but, you know, that was all that was focused on in the church every Sunday near election time, you know, vote for the anti-abortion candidate. And I can really see that coming back around now. And I, I think it's important to remember that a couple of folks from these key states are up for re-election um, this year. And so I think it, it will play um, into Alabama's Senate race. Doug Jones, the Democrat, already facing a tough re-election. He has spoken out strongly against the Alabama law. So we'll see how that plays for him. Um, Senator Purdue in Georgia is also so up. That's a more swingy state. So, you know, if folks on the left are really upset about this and he's supportive of it, that could be an issue. There are also going to be groups uh, going after Susan Collins, who is up for re-election in Maine, for voting to confirm the justices <laughs> that could turn Roe versus Wade over. So I think that it's important to watch how this plays in those races. All right. Well, let's talk about something that's bipartisan here in Washington, and that surprise medical bills. The president last week called on Congress to pass legislation to ensure that patients who go to in-network hospitals or in emergencies don't end up with gigantic out-of-network bills. Actually, uh, he had two patients at the White House who were subjects of our KHN NPR Bill of the Month series. And if you're a loyal podcast listener, you heard them. Uh, and this week, we have draft bills from bipartisan groups in both the House and the Senate, except the 
bipartisan groups in the House and Senate are taking different approaches. So is bipartisanship going to be enough to get this uh, these these bills over the hump, or are they going to get hung up between the, the House and the Senate, even though we have Republicans and Democrats in both parts? Who, want, who wants to tell us a little bit about sort of each bill first? Uh, these bills are all dealing with this problem when someone goes to the hospital and the hospital is, say, in their insurance network and they get treated by a physician. It turns out that that physician who is working in the hospital does not take their insurance. uh, And then they get a big bill from that provider. And I think the version of this that gets written about the most is the emergency room doctors. And there are examples around the country of emergency room practices that aren't employed by the hospital, don't enroll in the same insurance networks, and can send people very big bills. And I think in some ways, that is super surprising because you're not planning to go to the emergency room at all. You're certainly not planning to um, have a lot of expense. Uh, but it's also a problem for other kinds of doctors that practice in the hospital, like, say, an anesthesiologist. You could go in for surgery. Your hospital would be in network. Your surgeon might be in network, but maybe not the anesthesiologist who you didn't pick and you don't have a lot of control over. Uh, this problem happens sometimes with radiologists and pathologists. Those are other examples of doctors where the patient's not really picking that person. That person is just sort of there and doing their job. And if they don't have the same network, then the patient can get stuck. I think that there is reason to be optimistic that some solution to this problem could become law in this Congress. There are some disagreements about the policy, but the agreement that the problem needs to be solved is bipartisan. It's bicameral. It is shared by the White House. And I'll talk about the differences between these bills. And and it's shared by the stakeholders, by the the insurance companies and the doctors and the hospitals all say they want to fix it. They all say they want to fix it. They Uh, just have different (laughs) ways they want to do it. I think that there actually are a lot of things about all of the approaches that are being discussed, which is relatively similar. So there's sort of these principles. And the White House laid them out last week, but all the bills share them. So the idea is like the patient should be totally taken out of this process. They should never get a surprise bill. They should never even really know that this problem exists. What all these bills do is they say the patient pays what they would pay if the doctor was in network. You know, if they have coinsurance, if they have a deductible, whatever, they are going to pay what they would have paid for in network. And then the doctor or the hospital and the insurance company are going to duke it out. And if they can't reach an agreement, we are going to tell them what to do. And so the House bill says if there's no contract and there's no agreement, then the doctor will be paid the median in-network rate for that service in that area. Uh, So it's important to know that for a lot of these services, the median is actually quite a lot lower than the mean. So it's a pretty low benchmark. It's basically saying if you guys don't want to, like, write a contract and have a deal, you'll get paid and you'll get paid promptly by a pretty low payment rate. What the Senate bill does from Cassidy and Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire and some others is it says the, basically the same thing. You're automatically going to get this median in-network payment. And Senator Cassidy in a press conference on Thursday said, uh, the reason why this is important is we don't want the doctors to like you know not be able to pay their bills while they're fighting about this. We want them to get something right away. If either party thinks that's unfair... They can appeal the median in-network price and go to what's called a baseball-style arbitration system. So an arbitrator, it's like sort of like a judge. It's a person whose job it is to settle the dispute. And each party goes to the arbitrator, and they give one number. The doctor says, this is what I think is fair, what I should be paid. The insurer says, this is what we would like to pay the doctor. We think this is fair. And there's no more negotiating. The uh, arbitrator picks one number or the other. And the idea of this kind of... And it's what they do in baseball. That's why it's it's called baseball style. So that's how, like, baseball contracts are determined. And the the idea is that uh, this kind of 
arbitration gives a disincentive to have an outrageous price. Because if one person's like, I want to be paid a million dollars and the insurance company is like, we'll pay you the median and network rate, then, you know, the million dollar <laughs> offer is obviously uh, not going to be chosen by the arbitrator. So it creates an incentive for uh, the two sides to pick something that's close to the middle. But I think as a practical matter, and I've talked with a couple of economists who are really expert in this area, I don't think there's a huge difference between these two approaches because at the end of the day, both of them are basically saying what we think emergency room doctors, radiologists, pathologists, and anesthesiologists should be paid is the median in network rate. And so I think the arbitrators are going to know that too. And I think the parties are going to know that too. And so it seems that they will probably be relatively reluctant to appeal. And in fact, New York State has this baseball style arbitration system. They don't have this, you automatically get one payment, then you go to the arbitrator. Their system is if you can't reach a deal, you go to the arbitrator. And what they have found in New York is that basically no one goes to the arbitrator because the arbitrators have ruled a couple of times. The state law has some guidelines for how the arbitrator should make their decision. And all of the parties have learned if we go to the arbitrator, we're going to get paid about this amount, but we're going to have to pay all these administrative costs. It's going to take a while. And the loser pays the, the legal cost. The loser cost, pays right? the legal cost. So, like, why even bother? Like, we'll just agree to the price that the arbitrator would have picked. And so, I think all of these different solutions fundamentally amount to a kind of price setting that if the government is saying this is the benchmark, whether that is the House approach, which is this is the benchmark and you're getting paid that. Or it's the Senate approach where it says, you can go to the arbitrator, but the arbitrator knows what the benchmark is. I think in practice, what ends up happening is that everyone ends up getting paid about the same amount. Which, of course, then leads to the question of, will doctors work for that? I mean, obviously, you know, the, the doctors who are sort of in the hospitals don't have a lot of choice. But some of these emergency room I mean, one of the reasons that a lot of these emergency room doctors aren't in network is that they don't want to take the network rate. Right. But I think that the whole market dynamics really change. So right now, if you're an emergency room doctor and the insurance company comes to you and, and says, like, I'm going to give you a really low ball price and we're not willing to negotiate a rate that you think is fair, you can say, all right, forget it. I'll walk away. I won't take your insurance and I'll charge, I'll bill all these customers outrageous prices and some of them won't pay and I'll send it into bill collections. Some of them will and I'll get a lot of money and, you know, forget about it, insurance company. That's the current dynamic. And when you talk to the insurance companies, they say the doctors are greedy and they're being outrageous and they would rather just bilk the patients. When you talk to the doctors, they say, no, these insurance companies are being totally unreasonable. They're not offering us a market price. So there's a failure of negotiations. But the fact that the doctor can go out of network now gives them an option. It gives them more leverage. What a lot of economists think is it's led to the compensation for those specialties being pretty high. Emergency room doctors, I think, is like a little bit more arguable, but certainly, you know, the anesthesiologists, some of these other specialists, the fact that they have the ability to walk away from the negotiating table, that pulls up the prices because even the ones that go in network, even the ones that never intend to go out of network, they're kind of negotiating with that uh, outer spectrum of I can walk away. What these bills do is they basically make it so that they can't walk away. And so that is going to tend to depress their compensation. And that's why I think we've seen providers being a little bit skittish about these approaches, particularly about ones that are benchmarking the price to a relatively low price, this median, which is lower than the average price. And that's the price now, which is in this environment in which some of them are taking infinity. Imagine what's going to happen, what the feedback loop is going to look like if we have a policy like this for five or 10 or 20 years. Over time, you imagine that basically all of the prices are going to converge in this very narrow band. And that's going to, you know, this sort of 
median price is going to be a little bit lower, and it's going to be what basically everyone gets paid. That is an optimistic view. Um, but hey, maybe they'll get something done this year. <laughs> I think the one thing on that to point out that then on the Senate side is um, this was Senators Cassidy and Hassan, which was bipartisan. Um, but, you know, Senator Alexander, um, who chairs the, the com- relevant the, committee, the committee <laughs> is uh, is working on his own um, surprise billing mm-hmm. legislation that would be uh, wrapped in with some other things on cost cutting measures. But we haven't heard from him yet. The fact that some of these lobbies don't like this approach. I think that matters. You know, what's interesting to me about this fight is it's not your traditional sort of like Democrats versus Republicans fight. It's really, you know, a fight among the stakeholders. Obviously, at the end of the day, these members of Congress can vote for whatever they want. They're not beholden to these lobbies, but I think they are listening to them. And so if they pick something that makes either side too angry, that could be the kind of thing that could derail it. And I would say Republicans in general are a little squeamish about the idea of explicitly price setting. And so you see, even in the House, even with this House bill, which is basically saying, "Okay, we're going to pay you this one price. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of kind of spin around the idea of like these price benchmarks. And so I do think there's going to have to be some salesmanship around the idea that these are market-based solutions and not price-setting, Medicare-for-all kind of solutions. Yeah, and make sure the president who says he's for this doesn't end up backing away. All right, well, I want to move on. Um, Also this week, the House of Representatives is voting on a package of health bills, some of which are bipartisan and some of which are not. Um, Who wants to tell us what's in this package? Anna, there's a couple of, there's some drug stuff in there, right? There is some drug stuff. So these are the drug pricing bills that will probably, are most likely to really get through through um, the House and the Senate at some point this year. The House, what they're looking at are, it's not some big wholesale, we're going to see our drugs go down 20, 30, 40 percent at the pharmacy counter. These are really biting at the edges, essentially going after patents very heavily. And then, you know, and also sort of things that give drug makers exclusivity to market their drugs for a longer period of time um, without competition. So one of them actually... So basically trying to, to boost generic competition. They're trying to boost generic competition. So essentially, one of the probably most talked about one um, is called the CREATES Act, which keeps brand drug makers from withholding samples that the generic drug makers need to do testing so they can bring generics of those drugs to the market. That's been sort of a shady practice that some of the brand drug makers do to keep competition at bay. And so that's that's an easy bipartisan thing to sort of talk about. And yet they've been talking about it for they like have been three talking Congresses. About it for a very long time. You know, they've also been talking about this pay for delay, which they're going to go after in this group of bills up in the House. Um, and that's, yeah, that's where the, the brand name pays off the generic company not to bring its drug to market. Exactly. Yeah. So they, so they delay generic competition by paying the generic. And the generics like that because they still get money. So I think everybody's happy and really no except, one... Except the consumers. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, these are things that are going to be packaged in the House with probably what would more for Republicans be considered a poison pill as far as dealing with some um, issues with the Affordable Care Act. So they're going to... Not even big issues. Not not big issues. But, but these yeah. are, you know... Putting res- money back for outreach and navigators. Exactly. And and giving states money or, you know, to set up their own exchanges, things like that. But those are things that, you know, Republicans are not going to, not all of them that they're going to want to vote for, or at least I don't think they will want to. We have to see. Um, but, you know, in the Senate, I think that's really where the action on this is going to be on the drug pricing 
housing side. Um, they'll do a lot of these bills that I that I talked about, basically trying to get more generic competition to market. And there are a lot of senators working on that. And those should start kind of you'll I think you'll see packages forming in the next you know month or two um, that will can work through the Senate. And those possibly could be combined with what I mentioned earlier that Senator Alexander is working on as on, you know, surprise, on surprise bills. bills and also on some other cost cutting measures in healthcare in general, not just drug pricing. And that's a possible way to appease the, the Democrats who want ACA reform, you know, smaller ACA reforms in the the drug pricing bills and, you know, get them to come on board by saying, well, we're doing this other stuff on health care. Um, and the Senate agreed to it if that if that's actually what happens and get something through. I heard a cable TV news host who I will not name this morning describe these bills as huge and important. Um, no. They- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one, the Senate is not going to vote on this whole package. It's not going to happen. Um, and I think the piece... The ACA piece that Republicans might be most against out of the ones up today is um, re-restricting the short-term plans. Um, Republicans think, you know, these short-term plans are great. They're cheap. They give people more choices. Um, They don't offer a lot of benefits. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) They're shown to uh, frequently um, defraud their customers. But hey. Um, uh, And so I I think that um, might might be um, the biggest poison pill up today. But but also um, these do not do some of the more sweeping things that Democrats have promised in terms of the ACA. There's still bills pending have not come to the floor yet that would um, make subsidies available to more middle class Consumers who are struggling in the unsubsidized portion of the individual market with people who are just over that level, right, to to get federal help. But also more subsidies for lower income people, too. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's both. Right. And uh, reinsurance, which would um, conceivably bring down premiums. And reinsurance, which, of course, is is bipartisanly popular, but got hung up over abortion last (laughs) year. And could again. And could again. Yes. I think it's interesting to think about this package just from the perspective of sort of the Democratic leadership Mm -hmm. strategy. So I think, I mean, one thing is obviously a lot of Democrats in the House were elected on a promise to protect pre-existing conditions, to support the Affordable Care Act, to improve health care affordability. And so the Democrats in the House are trying to pass a lot of bills. They might be sort of small bills, but I think they are trying to show we want to do something about health care, about health care affordability, and we're going to fix the Affordable Care Act. We're going to lower prescription drug prices. Uh, so they're doing kind of this push. There was one bill last week. There's this group that will pass in this week. And then there is, are these other bills that Alice talked about. So there's going to be kind of like two batches mm-hmm. of these little bills. And the next batch, I think, will be more consequential. But I also think like they're really playing hardball by packaging all of these things together. I mean, the drug bills that Anna described have bipartisan support. We know the Senate leadership is interested in them, too. There would be would have been potential if those bills had just been brought to the floor alone and, and passed alone that they could have passed on big bipartisan majorities. And I think what the House leadership is basically doing is they're putting Republicans in kind of a tough spot mm-hmm. where they're going to have to vote against these bills that can be described as lowering prescription drug prices and which, you know, there were Republican co-sponsors on some of these bills. So I think the end game that Allison uh, Anna described seems right, that like probably the Senate will pass something similar to these and maybe it will come back and, you know. We'll mix and match at the mm-hmm. end. Right. We'll mix and match at the end. And I'm sure that the House leadership was aware of that when they made this choice. But they also, I think, really are kind of sticking it 
in the nose, you know, sticking it in the face of the Republicans and saying, well, we dare you not to vote for these bills. Although I should I should add that the official reason they package them together is that the drug bills actually save money and they're using that money to fund the Affordable Care Act changes that cost money to, to, to make but, the whole thing. But they're not out. upset about uh, forcing Republicans to vote against, you know, a popular bill to lower prescription drug prices. Not one so they bit. could make some ads about that and run them in some races. All right. One more topic this week um, while we're talking about the Affordable Care Act. We will soon see the first ever public option for health insurance on an ACA exchange in Washington state. Uh, Governor and presidential candidate Jay Inslee signed the bill earlier this week. The idea is to boost competition. There are a number of counties in the state of Washington where there's only a single insurer, as well as bring down premiums and deductibles. Um, The proposals to pay providers 160 percent of Medicare rates, that sounds like a lot, but it's way below what a lot of private insurers pay. Are they going to be able to get enough providers to make this work? It's an open question. It's an open question who they can get to participate. It's an open question who they can get to enroll. It's an open question what they're going to charge those enrollees. There's just there's a lot of unanswered. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting, too, that um, this is a public option that is not run by the government. So this is going to be sort of that hybrid we've we've heard about where like Medicare Advantage, where the insurance companies will be it'll be up to the insurance companies to get the providers that are needed and, you know, to bring them into this. And it's not the government's kind of passing that off on them to the government in Washington State. They will tell them, you know, kind of the parameters like the ACA does. But then the insurance companies have to um, they'll be administering this. So they need to come up with a plan that will work, essentially. This sort of public option has always been a little bit puzzling to me because it seems like if the private insurers could develop viable networks at lower prices, why aren't they doing it now? And uh, if they can't. Like, why is the, you know, I mean, this is actually administered through the same private insurers that are already on the exchanges. They have every incentive. The marketplace structure gives them every incentive to make their premiums as low as possible because people are shopping for insurance coverage. They want the cheapest plans. Uh, The way that, you know, most money that is spent on premiums is spent on medical expenses. The largest contributor to medical expenses is the price of services. So, you know, in Congress, where there's a lot of just, and in the presidential race, there's a lot of discussion about kind of different types of public options. But those are public options that tend to leverage existing public programs that do have the ability to um, price fix and to maintain reasonably large networks. So if you had a public option that was an expansion of Medicare, said, or that had a rule that said if you want to take Medicare, then you have to take these patients, then I think the public option actually, in the way that Medicare Advantage does, has the ability to get these low prices and to, you know, potentially undercut the existing private market. But without that leverage, with it just, you know, with the state legislature just saying, this is what we're going to pay you, go make your network with those payments. Like, I really don't know. I think the one encouraging thought I have is that obviously the state has a Medicaid program. The Medicaid program does tend to generally pay prices that are lower than commercial rates. And state Medicaid programs usually do a pretty good job of uh, creating reasonably adequate networks. So, you know, maybe it is more possible than I think it is, but I don't really understand why having the legislature 
lay out the prices is necessarily going to make those negotiations between insurers and providers any easier. Well, it will be very interesting to watch to, to see how this plays out because, as Margo pointed out, there's so many proposals for this sort of thing that are mm-hmm. kicking around in Congress. So here's somebody actually this is just also, trying like, to do it. We've talked about this before in the context of single payer, but I do think that there are certain kinds of health care reforms that are really easily achieved at the state level and that can be kind of well-piloted at the state level. And I think there are others that are harder to do without federal assistance. And and this just, I could be totally wrong about this, but this strikes me as one that a federal public option is probably a little bit easier to pull off than a state level public option. But we'll see. Fair point. All right. It is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Anna, what do you have this week? Mine is from Kaiser Health News. Um, It's by Sarah Jane Tribble, and it's titled Dealing with Hospital Closure, Pioneer Kansas Town Asks What Comes Next. Sarah Jane did a great job of, um, you know, going to this town in Kansas and a very, very rural area um, and chronicling this hospital closure um, that has is really, you know, the only hospital that they have within any reasonable distance. Um, Otherwise, they're driving very far and it's a it's a great story about um, you know what the hospital means to the this area of Kansas and what you know what happens when it when it closes and how they're dealing with it and how they're trying to put band-aids on it but obviously there are worries for you know what in when there's an emergency or when you know babies are being born like where where do they go and where do they get health care and how that the hospital wasn't profitable so you know how do you how do you provide health care for a town like this and I, I will point out that this is the first story um, of a year project that that Sarah Jane is doing with this community so oh, interesting great yeah. Alice. So with all of the news about the abortion bans in different states, um, I um, wanted to call attention to a piece in the New York Times by Aaron Carroll called Why Politics Should Be Kept Out of Miscarriages. And um, it's digging into the question that is on a lot of people's minds this week of could women who miscarry in some of these states with these abortion bans somehow be held criminally responsible um, or be so afraid of being held criminally responsible that they don't see medical care when they do have a miscarriage and and need to go to a hospital or a doctor. It's digging into just how little is known about what causes miscarriages and the dangers there of, yes, there are certain risk factors associated with it, smoke. I mean, it's all of the healthy versus unhealthy um, behaviors that are risk factors for everything. Um, Smoking, unhealthy eating, um, weight, all kinds of things. Um, Those things are also associated with poverty. And so there's the worry that this is just going to, you know, make things even more difficult for low-income women uh, in these states. And so um, it is speculative. It's not yet known. This is focusing on Georgia specifically, where under the new law, if it's not blocked, a six-week-old fetus uh, has full personhood rights. And thus, even in a miscarriage situation, that still is the death of a another human being under Georgia law. And so um, potentially investigatable yes. by law enforcement. Right, right. And there's a lot of discretion. And even before all these laws passed, we have seen in this country a few examples of women who miscarry being investigated and prosecuted. And so this is not, you know, sci-fi. This is <laughs> this is not dystopia. This is really happening. I covered one of them in Indiana. Margo. 
Uh, I wanted to draw your attention to an article in JAMA about soda taxes. It's a long title, Association of a Beverage Tax on Tax on Sugar Sweetened and Artificially Sweetened Beverages with Changes in Beverage Prices and Sales at Chain Retailers in a Large <laughs> Urban Setting. Uh, Margaret, would... you, you are my expert on soda taxes. Yeah, so this is a study of the Philadelphia soda tax, uh, which I actually spent a lot of time reporting on sort of how that tax came about. The way it works is any beverage that has a sweetener, so this covers both like sugary drinks but also diet drinks, there is a tax of one and a half cents per ounce. So that increases the prices of soda, you know, I don't know, depends on the size of the soda, but you know, it's it's non-trivial. It's also not enormous. Uh, and this was passed in Philadelphia, which is a large city. It is of the 10 largest cities in the United States, uh, the poorest. It has very high burden of obesity and diabetes. And so there was a real hope by the public health community there that the soda tax would be good for public health, but that was not the way that it was sold politically. The mayor of the city sold it as, this is going to be a great way to raise money for the city to pay for universal preschool. And universal preschool was super popular. So anyway, the soda tax passed. Uh, This study did some follow-up where they looked at what happened to soda sales in Philadelphia and in some but not all of the neighboring communities. And they found a pretty dramatic reduction in the sales of the tax products, much larger than previous soda tax studies have found, and kind of politically problematically large drops. So they found, okay, the soda, you pass the soda tax, the price of soda went up. That was somewhat controversial. It wasn't clear if it would happen. It did happen. The prices went up. People bought less soda, 38% less soda Overall, some people did go to the suburbs, so they kind of walked across the city line and went to some place where there was not a tax. But even accounting for most of those people, there was still a huge reduction in the soda tax. So what's interesting, if we believe these results, and I think there are some smart criticisms of these results, uh, a few things to consider. One, they only looked at large retailers, not at corner stores. And I do think a lot of people do buy their soda there. And maybe people were, you know, maybe those uh, retailers were not complying in the same way. Who knows? They were left out. Uh, We also don't know what happened to consumers that might have crossed the river and gone into New Jersey. There are tolls. Uh, to go across. So you would imagine like people probably are not paying. <laughs> you would not say even if you went to Costco, you would not really save money. But. I mean, you might save. I mean, I guess it really depends how much soda we're talking about. Right. <laughs> uh, but those weren't included. So there could be more leakage. It could be an overestimate uh, for that reason. And also, it's important to know that soda sales nationally are already falling. Uh, you know, fewer and fewer people are drinking sugary beverages. I think the word has gotten out that they're not very good for you. Uh, they compared themselves to they compared the Philadelphia experience to Baltimore, which they said was another city that was similar in a lot of ways. It's a city, large city that was similar in a lot of ways, not exactly the same. So who knows? But if this result is real and if it's borne out by future research that looks at the corner stores, that looks at New Jersey, that looks at other places that have soda taxes, I think what this tells us is that this is a policy that has the potential to have a pretty big public health impact. You know, if you're cutting soda consumption almost in half and you think that soda is a contributor to these health problems, which a lot of uh, health experts do, that seems like it could be consequential. On the other hand, if you're cutting soda consumption by nearly half, it means a soda tax is probably not a very good way to fund universal preschool. <laughs> uh, and so good news, bad news. <laughs> I think, you know, it affects the the way that, the you know, I think there's been a backlash in Philadelphia because it hasn't produced the revenue that was promised. And a lot of Democrats even in Philadelphia now, there are primary challenges to the mayor. There are uh, candidates running for city council who are disappointed that the mayor, you know, sort of didn't keep his promises of funding this really popular new program. So it's, uh, it's you know, 
little bit of a double-edged sword. If these taxes worked on the public health side, they may not work on the finance side so well. Yeah, we've seen that with tobacco, too. And I'm sorry to go on. Just one more thing, which is we really don't know if soda taxes improve public health. Even if no one drank any sugary drinks at all, it is totally possible that maybe all the people who used to have a Coke now go eat a cookie. Mm -hmm. And uh, figuring out whether these policies have an effect on the health outcomes that we really care about, about obesity, diabetes, heart disease, tooth decay. I think it's going to be really hard to study. It's going to take a really long time. We can easily study, did the price go up? Did fewer people buy soda? But uh, what they did with the rest of their lives and how their health was affected is going to be harder. As it is with with, with all research on, on public health and, and consuming habits. All right. Well, minus from The Atlantic. It's called Why the Government Pays Billions to People Who Claim Injury by Vaccines by Jim Hamblin, who's a doctor in addition to being an Atlantic health writer. And it's a nerdy but timely explanation of the history of the US, U.S. Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, which I have kind of a soft spot for because I covered its creation in the late 1980s when I was a cub reporter. Um, the VICP was created by Congress because at the time, lawsuits about ac- claiming adverse vaccine events were threatening to push drug makers out of the vaccine business entirely and were causing serious shortages of some important childhood vaccines. The program's funded by a small tax on vaccines and creates a no-fault system where certain injuries are just presumed to have been caused by vaccines and families are paid without having to actually run through the, the usual you know, lawsuit process. Uh, autism, I should point out, is not one of the known vaccine injuries. There was a big study, and actually this was one of the places where, uh, where we just, you know, where we had some more good evidence that, yes, vaccines do not cause autism. Um, And while the story notes that some of the claimed injuries in the program have fed the anti-vaccine movement, um, overall, the program seems to be working the way it was intended. Does anyone ever talk about mimicking the structure for medical malpractice claims? Yes. (laughs) We'll talk about that another time. That's all we have time for today. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Anna Edney. At Alice Olstein. At Sanger Katz. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.